X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Friday, April 30th. The Local is brought to you by X-Ray FM. At X-Ray, we're bringing you The Local every weekday. And folks that put this together volunteer their time to do the show because they love it and they think it matters. From every producer, news writer, editor, booker, and host, this team is working harder than ever to bring you news that matters to you. We're working to bring you a full view of our city and where our place in the world is. We're bringing you voices of the kind of folks you often won't find on other news sources, from groups working to advocate for and support the houseless, organizations who just want to swim in the Willamette, folks working to regain Indigenous food sovereignty, or an author fighting for better representation in their genre. We pride ourselves on bringing you diverse voices from all over town. Interviews hosted by people just like you in your own backyard, and they're working hard to change their communities for the better. Having local news from the people experiencing our city every day has never been more important. It's because X-Ray isn't beholden to what's more profitable to corporations that we get to do awesome projects like these. Please join us in giving back to our city with programs like The Local by becoming a member of X-Ray today. Become a member at $10 or more a month to be part of building a better media from the ground up. You can go to xray.fm and click the blue donate button or call us at 503-233-X-RAY. That's 503-233-9729 to join today. X-ray. Today, back in the day, on April 30th, 1803, the United States purchased the Louisiana Territory from France. For the low, low price of $15 million, the U.S. doubled its land area by adding over 800,000 square miles. The buy was a bargain, with President Thomas Jefferson taking advantage of Napoleon's conflicts in Europe and his need for immediate revenue. The new territory stretched from the Gulf of Mexico and the major port of New Orleans all the way north into modern-day Canada. It also extended the U.S. boundary from the Mississippi River west to the Rockies. The French only controlled a small portion of the territory, with most of the land occupied by Native Americans. The U.S. was therefore buying the preemptive right to obtain the Native lands, either by treaty or by conquest. Jefferson immediately organized three missions, most notably the Lewis and Clark expedition, to map and explore the new territory and to find, quote, the most direct and practicable water communication across this continent for the purposes of commerce. The territory of Orleans would go on to become the 18th state under the name Louisiana on this date nine years later. And today, back in the day, on April 30th, 1946, Oscar-nominated filmmaker George Plimpton was born right here in Portland. After graduating from Oregon City High School and attending Portland State, he moved to New York City where he graduated from the School of Visual Arts. His films, Your Face and Guard Dog, have been nominated for Academy Awards for Best Animated Short Film. His work has also been featured in many publications, including The New York Times, Penthouse, and Vogue. X-Ray. On today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, 
And we have an interview with author Genevieve Hudson. X-ray. First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Oregon bar and restaurant owners are struggling to remain in business amid yet another indoor dining shutdown. On Wednesday, Brandon Woodruff, owner of the Manifest Beer Company, said he and other restaurant owners are, quote, pretty pissed. According to Woodruff, quote, it's not like any of us know how to run a business and close it down every two months. Other business owners are equally as frustrated. Colin Rath, owner of Migration Brewing, has been forced to close and reopen five times since the start of the pandemic, and he says the uncertainty of what to expect at any given moment has exhausted Oregon businesses and threatened their relationships with customers. According to Rath, quote, it's a whole lot of guess of a guessing game. Staff don't know what to plan on. Guests don't know what to plan on. Rather than getting upset, customers stop going and supporting certain places because it bounces back and forth. And just like Rath said, staff are affected by the sudden closures just as much as customers are. Many business owners now say they're struggling to find employees, as many people have decided to claim the $300 weekly unemployment benefits in place of the constant confusion and insecurity surrounding their former jobs. In response to the criticism, Governor Brown said that she is currently working with lawmakers to pass a $20 million relief package for small businesses. But for many restaurant owners, this can't make up for what they've lost. Jason Brandt, the president of the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association, said 1,200 restaurants have gone under since the start of the pandemic. On Tuesday, he criticized Governor Brown's plan and said it was, quote, offensive to tens of thousands of Oregonians working in restaurants and bars across our state attempting to pay their bills. And now your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 928 new and presumptive coronavirus cases today. That brings the total number of cases in the state to 188,830. There also was one new COVID-related death. And the death toll is now up to 2,491. As of Thursday, an additional 26,858 vaccine doses were administered to Oregonians. In the midst of a statewide shuttering of Oregon restaurants, one nonprofit organization is working to limit food waste. The Blanchet House in downtown Portland announced that they will be accepting any and all food that restaurants would otherwise have to throw away. Their announcement came on the heels of Governor Brown's statement that 15 of Oregon's largest counties would move to the extreme risk category, thereby eliminating indoor dining for the foreseeable future. Scott Kerman of the Blanchet House said the organization made a similar announcement at the start of the pandemic last year. According to Kerman, quote, when restaurants closed a year ago in March and April, the Blanchet House received 80,000 pounds of food in a matter of weeks. The Blanchet House provides breakfast, lunch, and dinner six days a week and offers several transitional housing programs. On average, the organization serves 1,000 meals daily and in 2020 provided 500,000 meals to Oregonians some of whom were experiencing food insecurity for the first time. According to the Blanchet House, roughly 90% of the food they serve is donated, 
Any food they receive that can't be served is often sent to the Blanchet Farm in Carlton for farm animals to eat. In 2020, their pigs and goats ate over 60 tons of food scraps, which otherwise would have been tossed into landfills. Kerman and the others at the Blanchet House are encouraging restaurants to donate. As Kerman said, quote, it's a good way not to waste food because we'll make food for people who need it. On Thursday, Governor Brown announced that she would be continuing the state of emergency for another 60 days. According to both Governor Brown and the OHA, Oregon is in the midst of its fourth COVID surge, and this particular wave has led to more than 50% increase in cases. Oregon is now reporting the fastest increase in cases in the entire country. By declaring a continuation of the state of emergency, Brown has enabled state agencies to adjust certain pre-existing Oregon regulations. She will allow bars and restaurants to sell cocktails to go, and she has also widened the scope of who is able to administer vaccines. Dentists, veterinarians, optometrists, and healthcare students, among many others, can provide vaccine doses to Oregonians. According to OHA Director Patrick Allen, quote, this is an all-hands-on-deck effort nationally and in Oregon to ensure that we are safely vaccinating all eligible adults who wish to receive a vaccine. The state of emergency will end on June 28th, In a statement Governor Brown released on Thursday, she noted that the majority of current COVID cases are young, unvaccinated Oregonians and said that vaccinations are, quote, the quickest path toward lifting restrictions. Governor Brown also said that she plans to, quote, fully reopen our economy by the end of June, but that how quickly we get there is up to each and every one of us doing our part. Early Thursday morning, six earthquakes struck roughly 200 miles off the Oregon coast. The cluster of quakes occurred along the Blanco Fracture Zone, which is a highly active fault line that meteorologists continually watch. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, or USGS, the quakes were all over six miles in depth and occurred within about 40 minutes of each other. The first earthquake struck at 3.25 a.m., and the final struck at 6.33 a.m. The USGS also said they received 13 reports from people who actually felt the tremblings. The earthquakes ranged from 4.3 to 5.4 in magnitude. At those levels, people typically feel the quakes, but fortunately suffer little to no harm from them. Oregonians have long lived in fear of the big one, a legendary earthquake that experts say will inevitably hit the state at some point, and cause catastrophic damage. But according to KGW meteorologist Rod Hill, this particular cluster is, quote, nothing unusual, nothing alarming, and nothing to worry about. Thursday's earthquakes were preceded by another quake that happened on Wednesday afternoon at 2.36 p.m. in the same area. But the USGS said Wednesday's quake went relatively unnoticed and that they received zero reports about it from locals. And some good news. The TriMet Board of Directors has approved a new labor contract. On Wednesday, the board officially passed a new working and wage agreement. The contract will enable TriMet to restructure their hiring and training practices and will ensure that employees receive appropriate wage increases. Employees will receive road relief stipends for the first time in years, and TriMet will double short-term disability benefits to $300 per week. 
The board also approved an agreement on trading shifts that will reduce the cost of when operators miss work. 87% of TriMet's union employees who are supported by the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 757 supported the new contract. The Local 757 has been in negotiations with TriMet for the past year and a half. They have been especially vocal about protecting union workers in the wake of the pandemic. TriMet Interim General Manager Sam DeSue Jr. also expressed gratitude for TriMet operators and said the new contract, quote, provides our union workers the backbone of our agency with the pay and opportunities they deserve. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Joining us now is Genevieve Hudson. Genevieve's debut novel, Boys of Alabama, was published in May of 2020 and has recently been nominated for the Oregon Book Award for Fiction. The award will be announced on May 2nd. Today, we'll talk about queerness, Alabama, witchcraft, and what it's like to release your debut novel during a pandemic. Joining us now is Genevieve Hudson. Genevieve's debut novel, Boys of Alabama, was published in May of 2020 and has recently been nominated for the Oregon Book Award for Fiction. Genevieve is also the author of a short story collection, Pretend We Live Here, and the critical memoir, A Little in Love with Everyone. They have also received fellowships from the Fulbright Program, McDowell, Caldera Arts, and the Vermont Studio Center. Today we'll talk about queerness, Alabama, witchcraft, and what it's like to release your debut novel during a pandemic. Genevieve, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to hear from you. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. All right, let's jump right into it. For some of our listeners who haven't read the book, can you tell us what Boys of Alabama is all about? Sure. Um, Boys of Alabama uh, is about a new um, teen uh, from from Germany who comes to Alabama with his family. Uh, And he's kind of set down in the middle of this culture that's very different from what he's come from. Um, There's, uh, you know, a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of football. There is um, a strong association with um, a kind of Christianity, um, Southern Christianity that um, Max, our narrator, is um, also not familiar with. And he joins the football team and is, really pulled into this new world um, of kind of hyper uh, toxic masculinity, but also camaraderie um, in, in, a, in friendships like he's never known. But while, uh, while he's being pulled into this world, he's simultaneously drawn to um, this, this uh, young, queer, kind of witchy kid in his grade named Pan, who he begins to develop a relationship with. And um, that relationship is very at odds with this new kind of world he's living in. So we see how Max navigates um, this, these two parts of himself and this new Alabama that he's, he's come to live in. So place and space is really front and center in this novel's language. How do you go about evoking the spirit and energy of a place? Mm, um, that's a great question. I, um, I'm, I really think of myself as kind of a, well, I, I was going to say I think of myself as a place-based writer, and I actually am going to walk that back a little and, and say I think that really depends on, um, you know, what you're writing and um, what is kind of evoked on the page in that moment. But when I was writing about Alabama, which is where I'm from, I found that the landscape and, and the place there 
felt so alive to me and so present in my um, history and my mind and my imagination that um, it became kind of like another character that I wanted to bring to life. And actually, when I would go home to Alabama while I was writing um, this novel, and I say home as in my childhood home, um, I would go back and I, I would really be taken with um, with the land and with the place around me. I, I would sometimes walk around with my phone and write, um, you know, speak aloud in voice memos that I was seeing, or I would spend some time after I went um, out somewhere, went on a drive, just writing and kind of really noticing um, the the feeling of like the wet heat and um, you know the the landscape, the particular quality of the sun were all things that had made such an impression on me when I was younger and growing up there and, you know, living in the Pacific Northwest and later living in Amsterdam. Um, the landscape's very different from that. And yet I wanted to really bring to life this, um, you know, this, the real, you know, feeling, the visceral feeling of the Alabama that I grew up in. Yeah. I also love how intimately connected Max feels to the landscape, even though Alabama isn't his home. Um, Whenever he passes by, specifically, um, like, dead nature, um, he seems, like, deeply, deeply impacted, both in his body and in his heart. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's a, you know, a whole kind of plot line in this novel about um, Max's kind of supernatural ability to touch um, things that are, that are dead, small plant life, small animals, and have them come back to life. Um, and, and I think that is such a somatic, such a bodily experience um, and in for Max. And I really wanted to have that um, be evident in the prose, to, to feel, to have the, the reader be able to feel kind of a similar experience or to make them conscious of their own body as well. Um, because I think so often uh, when we read, it's, it's such a mental activity, but all day and we're, feeling different reactions to things. And I wanted to kind of evoke that in the reading experience as well. Has a year of quarantine changed the way you think and write about place, whether it's just a street or a state or a whole country? Mm. Oh, that's, I, I love that question um, because I think quarantine is, has changed so much about um, our attention and the way we see things and the way we kind of inhabit um our lives, at least I know that's true for me. Um, I would say that I'm sometimes even more alive in the place in my imagination. So right now I am actually also writing about somewhere that I haven't lived in, in a long time and really trying to evoke the, the feeling and the memory and the imprint of those, those places. One thing I've, I've always done is to use Google images and Google maps to Google places I'm writing about and kind of look and see and remind myself, what exactly is that? How, what is that tree? You know, and then kind of looking up that tree and doing my own little bit of investigative work to confirm or expand on what's there in my memory. Um, and, and I think one thing that maybe is similar to, to quarantine, um, to writing in and out of quarantine is that I am often writing about places where I'm not, where I am not physically present. So I, I feel like I, I often need space to write about a place um, so that the, my mind can really expand and remember and um, 
I, I don't know, maybe have some, some distance from the thing that I'm writing about. And quarantine is really, obviously, it's facilitated that for me um, because I'm not really, I'm not going anywhere. Um, and I think that <clears throat> for me also, it, it has at times been a little harder to find a real sense of stillness, even though um, so many things in life have slowed down and are actually stiller. I find that my mind um, is is often moving faster than it than it was pre quarantine. Mm-hmm. I definitely relate to that feeling. Um, yeah, I'm also thinking about kind of the feeling like you're neither here nor there when you're inhabiting a place in your imagination. And I kind of want to dig into that deeper. So your your book sits between a lot of different genres. It's got elements of the teen coming of age story, a southern gothic, and magical realism. Can you speak a little bit? about queer writing and the desire to resist rigid categorization? Yeah. um, You know, it's it's interesting. Kind of before I go into that, I will, um, you know, people often say, oh, you know, your book is is doing so much. It it kind of, as you said, it's Southern Gothic and it explores coming of age narratives and there's magic realism. And um, it's interesting because when, you know, I sat down to write the book, I, I didn't think about it of course, in terms of category or what the book was, it was like the story inside of me felt like it needed to be told. And I think, you know, it, in all of its messiness and it's all of its kind of meandering, um, not that the book is messy or meandering, but kind of that creative process. It's like, this is the story that it needed to be told. And it felt like to remove one of the layers or, or elements was to, you know, do damage to the story itself. So, I love being able to kind of inhabit and touch upon all of the different kind of complications of those categories. Um, and I think specifically in terms of queer writing, which is something um, that's really, uh, really, really important to me. Um, it, it's not something that I, again, seek out intentionally to do, but it, it's something that as a queer person just makes sense to me that I will be telling stories about um queer people and queer lives um, and in a way that, you know, as you say, I hope resists categorization. I, I want to tell the story of a, of a person living their full experience and they happen to be a queer person. Um, and, you know, I think that all different kinds of queer novels are going to have, are going to have to be, you know, kind of narrowed down because they're telling a specific story. But my hope is that, you know, through more people writing about queer narratives, that we get all all different elements of the, you know, human lived reality. So we'll see stories that are, of course, still coming of age stories. We'll see stories that are joyous, stories that have sorrow. We'll see stories that are boring and mundane. And we'll start to really build in that full experience. And I think that's really important to see because when I was growing up, I was a voracious reader and of course there were queer stories and novels out there, but they weren't accessible to me. I, I didn't see any, I wasn't able to read any. And because of that, I wasn't really able to imagine or to understand what the full breadth of my life could be as a queer person. You know, I think stories are so vital in reproducing what is, um, or creating what's possible. You know, we can really speak realities and existence to life, I think, as people who create stories and we can show possibility. Um, that's what I think is so beautiful about story and what is it so beautiful about resisting categor- categorization while still 
showing um, the possibility of different kinds of marginal marginalized right now in our society, those lives and feeling them um, lived kind of out loud and in full expression. This is Carly Quadros, and I'm speaking with Genevieve Hudson, author of the novel Boys of Alabama. I completely agree with you about that. And that was something I kind of encountered reading other interviews with you. A lot of people were interested um, in the inherent violence and trauma of living in the South or being a young queer person. And that stuff is there in your novel. But I also felt there was just as much, if not more, tenderness and desire and beauty and wonder. So how can we tell our authentic lived stories as queer people without divining that story around trauma or alienation? Yeah, you know, I think that, that that's such an important conversation that's being had in um, queer spaces right now. I think, um, you know, some people are, are really rightly tired of of hearing about, you know, queer narratives that are always muddled and mixed with and so closely tied to, to trauma. And yet that that can still be a real story and a real story that that wants to or needs to be told. Um, so I think for me, it's it's about kind of widening the 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 lens to show more of the experience. You know, how do we also show those moments of, um, you know, real queer joy? How do we show moments of queer friendship? these different parts of the experience that maybe were not the first ones to start to make their way into, um, into the discourse, into the, you know, more mainstream viewership or readership or whatever it is that kind of is consuming different kinds of, um, or is the platform for queer stories to be told within. Um, that, that felt important to me when I was writing this was to show a full experience and was to really lean into Kind of the joy and the tenderness and to also show paradox you know i didn't want these queer characters to be all good or all bad or you know to be completely living in their trauma but i also didn't want them to be you know without pasts that shaded their their characters so to me it is really about pursuing humanity and pursuing like the texture that makes up like our human experiences and how do you show that most vividly and accurately. So uh, moving away a bit, what were some of your non-literary influences for the book? Things you were listening to or watching? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I really love getting getting that question. I find myself asking that, um, that question to people when I do interviews with other authors as well, because I think, you know, so often we think about like, what are the other... Um, forms of the similar of that same art that are feeding into you. Uh, when I was writing this book, I was living in Amsterdam. And, um, you know, one thing that I think actually really was, was something that felt really um, like an exercise for my mind is that I was deep into learning Dutch, actually. And I was trying to read a lot of Dutch literature. Um, and that to me felt like a really interesting kind of new experience. I know that's still a book, but it feels like a different kind of, of exercise of, um, of the mind. I listen to a lot of Philip Glass when I write, um, that that's kind of my go-to, um, music that I put on, especially during this book. And I was also listening intermittently to 
country music as I wrote it to kind of evoke a feeling and place of the South. So I would listen to Patsy Cline. I would listen to Dolly Parton, kind of old music from my childhood that felt like it um, felt present. And also when I lived in Alabama, I listened to a lot of punk rock music. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I, I kind of had a funny little trifecta of Philip Glass classical music that I would, that I would play when I was like really in the flow. And then, um, I would listen to country music and, and punk rock uh, intermittently. <laughs> I love that. It's more of the, the many layers all at once. <laughs> yes. Um, so do you find that there was a big difference in the writing scene in Amsterdam versus the writing scene here in Portland? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, the writing scene in Amsterdam, um, it, it, for me, it felt very twofold. There was a very small community of expat writers writing in English very small, like a handful of us. And we, we knew each other and um, we would, you know, kind of go and meet. And there was a, a English speaking literary journal that has been around in Amsterdam for about 10 years called Versal. And that kind of cr- really created a, a hub of community in, in the city and in the country. But then there was quite a, a robust Dutch, um, Dutch writing scene that was really populated by young um, feminists. Dutch writers, uh, and some of them became came very close friends of mine as well. And you know, I, it, what was really great to see there is you know that literature is still you know really like a big place where people are having important societal and cultural conversations. And some of these young kind of feminist political writers they are really able to shape a lot of the narratives um, in Holland. And they get pulled onto the Dutch TV shows, and they're in the paper and. You know, it's a it's a small country, and you know you 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 can really see the way that um, the voices that they elevate can really have have influence within that sphere, which is really I thought was really inspiring to see. And uh, and what about here? What's your favorite thing about the writing community here in Portland? Uh, well, I will say that um, to be nominated for the Oregon Book Award um, was was a really amazing honor to me, but what felt even more precious about it was that I was nominated with some writers who I've, who I've really known and admired for a really long time since I've ever been in Portland. Um, you know, Chelsea Beaker, um, who wrote Godshot, is one of my closest friends. We used to live together. We, we met in graduate school here. We've been um, very, very dear friends for over a decade. And, you know, we met Vanessa Veselka, also nominated uh, around that same time. And she, you know, became a good friend of ours. And Lydia Yuknovich is someone whose book Chronology of Water I picked up when I first moved to Portland and, and you know, was really so mesmerized and inspired by by her writing. And, and to just have seen the way that these, you know, women, that their work um, really just was to me, like some of the best writing that I've read uh, and to see that that's happening in my city and that those are people that I can be in conversation with and, and get the, get the chance to like, you know, share a virtual stage with is something that feels incredibly special to me. Yeah. We've been lucky enough to speak with both Chelsea Beaker and Vanessa Veselka here on X-Ray. And it's just such a wonderful slate of writers for the Oregon Book Award this year, I'm really blown away. I'm I'm trying to work my way through all of them, and I'm very close now. Yeah. All right. We have an embarrassment of riches, definitely. <laughs> We've ju- got just a couple minutes left. Are you currently working on any more writing projects? 
I am. Um, I'm working on a new novel and I'm working on a, a few short stories as well, but they're pretty early in the process. And I think I have some superstition about speaking too much about them. Um, but I, I will say that I, I do finally have this renewed creative energy after feeling a bit like I had drained, um, drained myself with my last novel and needing to build back up um, into what I would what I would write about next. And I'm, I'm finally there, which feels good. All right, then I won't jinx it by asking. Thank you so much for being here, Genevieve. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really love talking to you this morning. How can listeners find out more about you and your work? Um, well, you can go to my website, Genevieve-Hudson.com. You can follow me on um, Instagram at GK Hudson or on Twitter at Jen Hudson. That's G-E-N. All right. Once again, thank you for being here and have a good morning. You as well. Bye, Carly. Bye-bye. Thanks to Jean Vielle for joining The Local. And a special thanks to our production team, executive editor Will Romy, supporting editors and writers John Collier, Nebraska Lucas, Joey McClone, Ryan Miller, Carlos Molina, Julia Oppenheimer, Carly Quadros, Miranda Selinger, Ryan Ryder Sherwood, and Sam Smargiazzi. Thanks for original journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.health.org, the Oregon Historical Society, Portland Mercury, Portland Tribune, Portland Business Journal, KGW, The Willamette Week, Coin, Pamplin Media, OPB, K2, The Oregonian, Statesman's Journal, Bike Portland, and News Partners, Portland Mercury, Street Roots, Bike Portland, and Peter Portland. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and giving us a five-star review, should you feel so moved. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Extra, 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 extra.